Hi, this is Kristen Regal. And this is Paul Rock. And welcome to the Common Room Podcast. Um, every Sunday at 1045, we gather together to talk about life and spirituality, about the common experiences we share, as well as some of the questions we wrestle with. We hope you enjoy this, and we hope to see you some Sunday at 1045. For those of you who haven't been here the last couple of weeks, the first three weeks of, of January of the new year, we've been doing a series on uh, character and looking at biblical characters, but then as a way to kind of reflect on our own lives and our, our own character or the character kind of of society. And so uh, we, two weeks ago, um, talked about Jezebel, and then last week we talked about Elijah, and they were kind of put up as the... She's kind of a mean, evil, seductress, uh, sexual uh, woman, and he was the uh, the righteous prophet. And how um, neither one of those descriptions are really uh, very helpful, and in fact, flattening and making people worse than they are or better than they are uh, doesn't obviously help them, but it, it doesn't help us either. And how we've got to think a little bit more in a more nuanced, nuanced and paradox way about our own character and other people's characters, and don't just judge people totally uh, by one one story that you hear about them, but allow allow us to have a little more grace. So that's one way we can be thinking about our own characters as we look at other characters in our life. And then today, uh, we are looking at the character, uh, his name was Zacchaeus. Um, anybody sing this song when you were growing up in, in church? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree, wanted to see. And as the Savior <laughs> and looked up in way, that yes. tree, and he, he said, with a finger waggle, Zacchaeus, <laughs> you come down, or I'm going to your house today. Yeah. So that's that's the. If you haven't heard of Zacchaeus before, you just did. Uh, and this the story of Zacchaeus is one that um, little kids grow up hearing about. If you grow up in the Christian faith, um, and it is one that typically kind of stays with that story of this this sh- short guy, little person, who uh, makes his way up into a tree so he can see Jesus. Um, but we don't talk a whole lot about then um, what happens when, when Jesus calls him down, what kind of a person Zacchaeus actually was and how he was understood by his community, and then what happened as a result of his having a, a meal with Jesus. It's pretty, pretty amazing. Talk about kind of transformational character stuff. And so uh, Nick Pickrell is here to lead us in uh, thinking about this third uh, biblical character and how it reflects on our characters, not just individually, but maybe kind of corporately as a society, how it should, should challenge our character. Um, and, and most specifically kind of talking about uh, what Zacchaeus does at the end of this story, which is, uh, I don't want to ruin the story, but he, he, he makes a, um, a big act of uh, what you could call um, uh, redistribution of wealth. Uh, he, he gives a lot of his stuff away. He's a wealthy man. And in so doing, Christ says um, the kingdom of heaven or, or salvation has come to this house. And so Christ kind of ties very specifically that redistribution of wealth with uh, salvation coming. And so uh, Nick's going to take a look at, at Zacchaeus, but then also tie it into some, some stuff that's, that's going on clearly in our society today. But um, just to introduce you, for those of you who don't know Nick uh, Pickrell, Nick has been... Um, uh, a part of second for how many years? Six. Six years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So six years ago, uh, Nick uh, came on as staff at second as uh, we were called. He was the the minister of awesome. I think was that your title? Oh yeah, given from Keith Brook. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. minister of awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. But more specifically, he was called our uh, 
from our neighborhood missionary. And so Nick's responsibility for a while there was just to kind of get to know people in the neighborhood, walk around, have a lot of lunches and coffees and gather with other folks and like what's going on around here, what do we need to talk about? Because oftentimes the church can become very comfortable in its own walls and we start talking to each other about everything that we know about and want to talk about and we, we completely become kind of divorced from what the church was supposed to be in the very first place, which was a community that cares for and heals people and reaches out all the time. It's very much kind of others focused. And so Nick helped us to do that as a church, and as a result of that, uh, started something called the Open Table, which is kind of a, not really a church plant, it's a, it's a, it's a community of conversation and reconciliation that has uh, grown up here, and they still meet here on the second and fourth Sundays of every month, and uh, Nick is in the process of being, um, going through training right now to become what's called a commissioned ruling elder, <laughs> so he will be kind of like the pastor of the Open Table officially, uh, and that will be like one of the newest churches in our in our area as the open table is launched um, and one of the things that's been cool about the open table is one of the things that I think Nick and others recognized uh, especially in the last five years as they've been kind of tuned, tuned into and tried to minister to this to our neighborhood in our city is um, thankfully kind of a, a new confrontation with the reality of racism and systemic inequality and, and inequity in our society um, a lot of it based on, on race. And so one of the things that, that the Open Table has done is said we want to really be a community that is intentionally kind of anti-racist. We want to do what we can in that way. And so uh, I thought maybe it would be helpful for you to tell a little bit about what, what you guys have all done and what that's meant to you uh, as, as the Open Table and, uh, and what your training has done and then how that, and then go ahead and transition to talking about Zacchaeus <coughs> and, and how that transitions into that understanding of that, that biblical story. Yeah, so I mean, the Open Table's learned a lot over the years. We, we initially, when we set out to create the Open Table, uh, we did so with a bunch of white folks, and we were wanting uh, like, like a multiracial church to exist. So that should have been the first red flag, right? But uh, you know, we have these blinders on all, all the time as individuals, and, and our work, similar to like the spiritual journey, it's important for us to recognize that we never arrive. And I, I would say that's probably one of the biggest lessons that, that we have learned at the open tables because we continue to fumble and make mistakes, but we're committed to staying at the table and learning from our mistakes and continuing to work to be increasingly anti-racist. So, so what we did at, at the open table, about two years in, we, we did a four-month series on racism. And um, as we were coming out of that series, we decided... Like, hey, it would be great if we could start some sort of social enterprise where we're actually offering anti-racism trainings all over town to hopefully uh, help folks recognize and wake up to the ways that structurally um, people of color um, continue to be excluded and exploited and just left out of things that, that for a lot of white folks have a pretty easy, easy time navigating. And so uh, we launched that, and over the course of this last year, we've, we've had over... 30 different organizations that we've offered trainings to uh, with over 2,000 people receiving these trainings. And we've got some cool stories of, of folks like actually shifting. Like one in particular, William Jewell, local college, um, they, they have a student government, right? Um, only fraternities and sororities are allowed to take part in student government. Like the, they're the governing body for that school from a student perspective. There's a black student union on campus, but they're not a sorority or fraternity. So guess who doesn't get to participate in decision making on that campus? Black people. So that, that's, that's a way that say, like, and I don't think anybody was intentionally thinking of this, but it's just like, what, what? I mean, look at our structures. It's just we don't challenge these things. We don't think about it. 
we have one view that we take we go in we're like well this is just normal it's like well you're not a fraternity sorority so clearly don't get in and you're not paying attention to the fact like who's all around you oh it's a bunch of white people is that problematic probably <laughs> especially since there's a number of folks on your campus that are black people indigenous people people of color so these are some of the things that we help folks try to wake up to and so now that that what they're trying to do at that college is they're trying to organize in order to get the constitution for their student government amended so that the BSU can be allowed on that on in that uh, governing body so those are some of the things that we've been working working on and I, I think that's it's it's hard work but it, it's something that like for me, uh, like I'm committed to it personally. I've, I've seen a num like a lot of growth, and I continue to screw this thing up all the time. But I'm committed to it, and so I think that's the important thing. It's like I'm, I'm not good or bad. I just am, and so I just need to uh, pay attention to my own impact and how it's affecting people of color. And so that's what we've been trying to instill at the open table because we've all got a lot of work to do, uh, but it's important that we do it. You know, otherwise this stuff just keeps on rolling for generations and generations because systems, they don't like to change. <laughs> they like to be exactly as they are now. I love, so at the open table we do a lot of dialogical stuff. Um, unfortunately, I, I did not feel like, I don't feel like I can break this thing up into this little short sermonette thing uh, and, and like have discussion like in between. So I'm just going to kind of roll <laughs> it and just do it and uh, afterwards we'll have a lot of discussion. All right, so here we go. We ready? Okay, so uh, the year is somewhere between 27 and 36 AD, and Jesus, while making his way to Jericho, uh, decided to heal a blind man. And usually when that happens, people tend to talk about it. And so by the time Jesus entered Jericho, a large crowd had gathered, because uh, all these people wanted to see who this Jesus guy was. Uh, among them was the, the wee little man, Zacchaeus. Thanks for singing the song. Mm -hmm. I've never heard that song in my life. Really? Yeah, I've never heard it. Are you I don't sure know. You're a Christian? Yeah, I, maybe not. I mean, I grew up in a fundamentalist Baptist church, so maybe there's like, uh, uh. But that doesn't make any sense, does it? Come on. Okay. So uh, anyway, Zacchaeus was short in stature, the wee little man, and so he went cruising through the crowds to try to to try to get a glimpse of Jesus. That didn't work, and so Zacchaeus looked around, spotted that sycamore tree, climbed it, and was able to get a better view. Um, now, Zacchaeus was uh, a high-ranking official who was involved in a profession that was known for exploiting and extracting Jewish resources that would benefit the ruling class and the Roman occupiers. So, so Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector. Not just a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector. This, this guy was high up on the totem pole. Um, and so I... I can only imagine the crowd's reaction to seeing Zacchaeus <laughs> up in that tree. Uh, we know from the, the, the scripture reading that I'm going to read here in just a second that, that some folks were grumbling. Uh, but I'm imagining some folks may have been shouting like, traitor or oppressor, because Zacchaeus was extracting their resources when they already didn't have very many to begin with. So let's, let's read the text here. It's Luke 19, uh, 1 through 10. So Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he couldn't because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, he has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Okay, so I'm going to pause right there for a sec to say just a, a couple quick things. 
One, like the crowd who already despised, Je- uh, not Jesus, they did not, well, some despised Jesus as well. But the crowd who already despised Zacchaeus for getting rich off of their meager pay, uh, here's Jesus call out to Zacchaeus. Uh, the, Zacchaeus the traitor, Zacchaeus the oppressor, Zacchaeus the tax collector. And not only did Jesus call out to Zacchaeus, but then Jesus invited himself over to Zacchaeus's house. This clearly upset the crowd. As we read in that like, last line, everyone was grumbling. So nobody was really happy about this. Uh, This meeting was a big deal to the Jewish community gathered in Jericho. Um, Folks congregated outside of Zacchaeus' house, and they were very interested in seeing how Jesus was going to respond to this person who had betrayed his own people. Um, So let's return to the text, and this time we're picking up from when Zacchaeus, uh, Jesus is in Zacchaeus' house. So Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I'll give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I'll pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and save the lost. So Zacchaeus, this tax collector upon meeting Jesus, went from exploiting his own Jewish people to making reparations. Um, He went from patting his own coffers to giving half his possessions away and um, repaying those he wronged four times the amount. So this was a radical shift for Zacchaeus. The the spirit was at work, and upon encountering Jesus, Zacchaeus got caught up in the movement of God towards justice. Uh, Zacchaeus' whole life was reoriented as he joined God's work of setting the captives free and uh, loosening the chains of injustice. And there's a great passage in Isaiah uh, that talks about what, what will be said of people whose private religious lives and their public commitment to justice line up. And this is what Isaiah says. You'll use the old rubble of past lives to build anew, rebuild the foundations from out of your past. You'll be known as those who can fix anything, restore old ruins, rebuild and renovate, make the community livable again. So you'll be known as people who make the community livable again. I love how Eugene Peterson translates that last verse there. Um, Zacchaeus caught the unexpected grace that Jesus offered him and responded by making his, public, or his private religious life match his uh, public commitment to justice. Zacchaeus acknowledged that he wronged his community, which is important, and he made it right by returning what he took from the poor plus interest. By doing this, Zacchaeus began to earn the trust of his fellow Jewish brothers, sisters, and siblings. By doing so, he made the community livable again. So this all happened behind closed doors, and and we don't know much about this meeting. Like you saw the amount of verses that were devoted to the meeting between Jesus and Zacchaeus. I highly doubt that that was the entirety of the exchange. Uh, I bet there was a lot more that we don't know. Um, But what we do know is that the Spirit of God moved in Zacchaeus, and it had community-wide ramifications. Uh, imagine how the crowds would have responded to know that Zacchaeus, the very same Zacchaeus that had prior to been extracting all the wealth from the Jewish people, was now giving them fourfold what was taken to them. Like that, that would have been a miracle. Um, so that's one scene. Now I want to set another scene for you. Uh, the year is now 1865. The Civil War is, you know, uh, some months, there's a few months left before it ends. The Union Army invades Georgia, and thousands of black refugees join the Union Army as they advance through the state. Georgia eventually surrendered, and a meeting was called in Savannah. 
So there were 20 black pastors that were called together to discuss what emancipation might look like now that Georgia had surrendered to General Sherman. And here's General Sherman looking rather stern. Um, <clears throat> so imagine this scene. There's 20 black pastors huddled together in this guy's um, headquarters. So this guy's there, clearly. So is the Secretary of War. And outside are thousands of black refugees and newly freed slaves who are struggling to survive, even though they've now been newly freed, uh, in a state that is hostile towards them. So this meeting that happens between the 20 black pastors and General Sherman here and the Secretary of War, it consists of 12 questions. And all the questions were asked by the Secretary of War and General Sherman. So what happened was... uh, uh, Garrison Frazier, a 67-year-old black Baptist minister, was the representative of the black community. So he was the one who was speaking on behalf of the black community there. So the secretary and general went down their list of questions, um, documented Reverend Frazier's answers, and then thanked folks for their time. They just like, Oop, all right, see ya, thanks. That's all we know about the meeting. Like, there were no promises made in that meeting. It's just like they, they basically went through what sounded more like a pop quiz rather than a genuine inquiry into the type of oppression that the black community had been, already been facing for hundreds of years. So this is a big meeting, naturally, for the black community, and everyone knew it. What Reverend Fraser said in that meeting would affect the lives, thousands of lives that were huddled outside those headquarters, and it would have affected the lives of thousands more scattered throughout the state, or the South, actually. So as the crowds waited for a response, for a response I'm, I'm sure that folks were grumbling and asking questions, probably not too dissimilar from what was happening outside of Zacchaeus' house. So shortly after the meeting, Special Field Order Number 15 is issued uh, by General Sherman. And what this order did was it, it reallocated. It took 400,000 square, uh, well, I don't know why I keep saying square. I mean, that's true, it's square. But 400,000 acres of land, coastal land, from South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. So it took 400,000 acres of land and gave it in 40-acre plots to roughly 40,000 newly freed black slaves. Additionally, they were allowed to rent a mule from the Union Army. So this is where the, the phrase 40 acres and a mule comes from. It's special field order number 15. So this all happened behind closed doors in a meeting that we don't know all that much about. The Spirit of God moved, and it had community-wide ramifications. And I, I wonder, I just imagine how that announcement would have affected those thousands of black slaves and refugees who were following General Sherman's army. Imagine how special field order number 15 would actually repair the community. Uh, imagine how that would make the community livable again, as Isaiah said. It was another miracle. Unfortunately, though, that 40 acres and a mule thing, that was, uh, that was short-lived, that redistribution of land and wealth, because uh, Andrew Johnson uh, was a man who did not like special field order number 15, and so as soon as he became president, he took all that land back and gave it right back to the white southern plantation owners. So for roughly eight months in our history, the U.S. acknowledged how it wronged black folks and made it right by giving land and wealth so that the black community could actually provide (laughs) for themselves. Like the black community was finally able to provide for themselves, free from the exploitation, free from the torture, the raping, and the killing that generations had to endure under white slave owners. So unfortunately, this is the closest that the U.S. has ever come uh, to making things right. This is the closest that the U.S. has come to acknowledging its 400-year history of oppression and exclusion of the black community, indigenous community, and other communities of color. Uh, So recently, the the call for reparations 
have re-entered our political discourse with this 40 acres and a mule emerging as a rallying cry. And I would say that, that this cry is emerging because our country has never made things right. You can pick any sector in our society, and, and you'll see some general trends. Like, I actually encourage you to go and do this, because it's pretty shocking. Like, literally pick any sector of society and look at some out- outcomes and look at some data. Because what you'll see is this, generally speaking. You'll see white folks having the best outcomes, black folks having the worst, and then all other people of color landing somewhere in between, generally speaking. By and large, that is the trend. And it's been like that for generations. So slavery has ended, right? Like, we ended slavery. That happened back in, the, like, 1865. But... Um, but systemic inclu- exclusion and exploitation have been a constant in our country from its founding until today. And so let me back that claim up with uh, a little bit of history. So before this field order in 1705, white indentured servants were given 50 acres of land, 30 shillings, a musket, and 10 bush- bushels of corn. Did so just white people give that? Just white people. So a handout? A handout, that's right. Yeah, it's, what's funny is like at the end of this, like we talk about there's some folks who have a very, very strong negative response to affirmative action. But yet we, we fail to see the hundreds of years of affirmative action that were given to white people, right? Like the structural advantages that were given to white people. Now, did, yeah, and, and they're, you know, to varying degrees. Like for, like, you know, for poor and working class white folks, you know, the system isn't necessarily working for them, but they're free from having to experience a lot of things because of their whiteness. So it affects us all differently. So black folks, yeah, naturally, they got nothing. So then 1785, white folks were given the opportunity to buy up to 640 acres of land at $1 per acre. Black folks, nothing. 1862, anyone who could pay $1.25 per acre and cultivate it for five years could have up to 160 acres. So this gave 85 million acres of stolen Indian land uh, to European homesteaders. With the last bit of that, this is the Homestead Act, with the last bit of that being distributed in the 1980s. So that's not that long ago. Um, 1865, 13th Amendment was passed, abolishing slavery with one exception, criminals. What came shortly after that? A whole bunch of nuisance laws. That law, laws like it made it illegal to look at a white woman. It's illegal to loiter, illegal to break curfew. It was illegal to be unemployed. For all these slaves who were just freed, are you immediately employed? No. This is a deliberate tactic to re-enslave the newly freed black slaves. So if you became incarcerated or whatever, then you, didn't, you couldn't vote that. I mean, so, so the, the ability to vote that was given to you by the 13th Amendment was taken away. Yes, 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 yes. All of the profit I don't think the ability to vote was given to the 13th Amendment. Oh, no, no, it was like, it, it was, like they didn't have it to begin with, but it was definitely not coming to them. Like the 13th Amendment made it so you could basically do slave labor still. And so this time, rather than, I mean, it changed the dynamic because what happened prior to that, prior to the emancipation, is a lot of, a lot of uh, white southern plantation owners had, had an, they, they had a stake in keeping their slaves healthy and productive. Uh, because if they were not, if they were not that, they, they would have to go out and spend a lot of money to get more slaves. Now that, that slavery is abolished, and now that they're all prisoners, they are allowed to just treat them as a total commodity without regard for their health or well-being, because there's always going to be more prisoners. And so it made it even more scary, post-emancipation proclamation, for the black community. So, so that, that's some of the things that the 13th Amendment set up. 
So then in 1933, we, we just keep on rolling here. We just, uh, the New Deal and the Federal Housing Act, a lot of folks love FDR. New Deal and Federal Housing Act made available $120 billion in home loans, 98% of which went to white people. It also created a lot of jobs, but because the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, they had to come up with another way to, to, keep, it from, to keep it from black people. And so what they did was they, they decided that it would, they would exclude two groups of people, domestic workers and farm workers, and who were largely employed as domestic workers and farm workers, black people, indigenous people, people of color. So <coughs> then we just keep on rolling. Uh, 1935 Social Security Act offered retirement funds to all people but excluded domestic workers and farm workers. That same year, we had the Fair Labor Standards Act also excluded domestic workers and farm workers. 1944, the GI Bill offered home loans, health care, and education to returning white veterans from the war. Black soldiers were excluded from this. And on and on this stuff goes. Yep, we definitely had the Civil Rights Act. We had the, the, the Voting Rights Act of 64 and 65. Yes, it opened the doors for many more people to have the same rights that white folks had been enjoying for hundreds of years. But knowing that white folks got a 400-year head start, who do you think owns all the property? Who do you think owns all the big corporations? Who do you think owns all the universities and hospitals and banks? It's white people. In fact, many of these things that happened in the 1930s shut down historically black universities and medical schools and hospitals. So this is, this is the ramifications of all these hundreds of years of, of structural advantage given to whites. So uh, today what we're facing is there are 140 million people who are living in poverty. So with that 140 million figure, that's 42% of our population. That's a healthy amount of us. And so I think it, it sounds to me like America has some confessing to do and some reparations to make. That's just my opinion. And this is where I think the encounter between Jesus and Zacchaeus becomes incredibly important for us. At the end of the Jesus and Zacchaeus encounter, Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Today salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus, by changing course, began to move in sync with God's movement towards justice. And Zacchaeus' move brought salvation to his household. Zacchaeus wasn't the only one saved, but it says that his whole household was as well, which is interesting. So Fred Craddock, who's a prominent theologian, said that uh, another way to say to be saved is to say to be made whole. That's another translation that you can use. So Zacchaeus experienced grace precisely as he admitted his public wrongdoing, and he responded by making it right. He gave half his possessions to the poor, and he gave fourfold to anyone who he wronged. Uh, his act not only made him whole, but it made the larger community whole. And why, why is that? I think it's because Zacchaeus stopped exploiting his community. The yoke of oppression was lessened because of Zacchaeus' actions, and by doing so, Zacchaeus entered into the movement towards justice, towards wholeness with God. And I believe that the Spirit of God is moving today as it was in that meeting between Jesus and Zacchaeus. So our, our task is to, like Zacchaeus, respond to that radical grace and slip into the movement of God, which is always loosening the chains of injustice and setting the captives free. But in order to take part in this movement, we, especially as white folks, we have to acknowledge how our ancestors have done wrong, how we have done wrong, 
how these systems that we have benefited from have done black people, indigenous people, and other people of color wrong. And we have to be committed to making it right. And I say committed to making it right because oftentimes a message that I often hear even in our anti-racism trainings is like, why do, why do I need to be held responsible for something that my, my like some random relative or just some unrelated white person did to make this whole system rotten? And the downer with this is, is if we have that position, what we have done is we've essentially said it's okay that systems of exploitation continue. I don't want any part of it, not in my backyard, doesn't affect me, you deal with you. And so by us taking this hands-off approach, we are essentially saying that we are complicit and we are okay with systems of exploitation continuing, which is why I say we need to be committed <coughs> to making it right. It's an active thing that we are responsible for. <coughs> so, uh, and this I would argue is, is justice versus charity. So. And the reality is, is like if we don't, like what we're doing is we're simply being privately righteous while participating in and profiting from programs that rob and crush other persons, which is precisely what Jesus was so pissed off at Zacchaeus about. That's exactly what he was doing. He was benefiting from the crushing of other persons. So, folks, I, I think the modern cry for reparations is a valid one as our neighbors of color have been intentionally excluded from the American wealth building project that many white folks have benefited from since our country's founding. So our, the, the 40 acres and a mule of today could just as easily have been the same rallying cry of the Jewish community gather outside of Zacchaeus' house. So today we have things like payday loans. We have things like lack of affordable housing west of Troost. We have things like Unequal funding for schools, lack of living wage jobs, especially east of truce, the welfare gap, we have mass incarceration, we have the over-policing of certain neighborhoods but not others, and on and on these injustices go right here in Kansas City today. Folks, I think that exploitation and exclusion have no place in the kingdom of God. So I guess my call would be for us to enter into the movement of God towards justice let us continue the work of Zacchaeus and let us work together to make our own systems right. Because when we do, our whole household will be saved. Our whole household will be made whole again. And we'll be known as the people who have made our community livable again. And I think that will be a miracle. Yeah? So, so that's it. So what I'd love to do... I. I always have, I'm an enormous extrovert, and I, I, I recognize that my extrovertedness means that sometimes I, I am not aware of the way that introverts like to process things. So as we process this together, I'm going to ask you just a couple questions, to, and I'd like for you to pair up and just have a conversation about it, because I feel like that's a lot less intimidating than just starting out with a, hey, just shout back at me. Okay, so what I'd love for you to do, here, here's a couple things I'd love for us to reflect on. Uh, one thing is to reflect, you can reflect on Zacchaeus, of course, and, and the implications that maybe Zacchaeus' move has for us today. And um, the other thing that you could hone in on is maybe the, the, the whole redistribution of wealth and what that would mean or look like for us today. So those are a couple questions just to kind of get going, just like what are your initial thoughts, and those are a couple prompts that you can use. But I'd love for you to just pair up. Okay. I hear that you're still talking, but I fear that if I just be silent, everyone will keep talking, which is great. So, um, 
so I'd love to just open it up for discussion. There doesn't have to be any like rhyme or reason. I gave you a couple prompts, and so I'd just love to hear what, what's coming up for you all. Anybody care to share? Yeah. I, um, I think it's important to uh, provide medical care for everybody in an equitable way because I feel like that also prevents people from building wealth, is mm -hmm. health and inability to pay for medical bills. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, a, that's an example of a system that creates a lot of barriers for folks based on both class and, and race. Because, you know, again, you look at the outcomes there. Like, what is it, black women have four times the infant mortality rate, and, and some of that is because of biases that, that are built into us as white people and also just failings in systems to just like question what this person is saying, you know? And then you take into account the class piece with folks not being able to afford care, then you've got a whole mess on our hands. Yeah. What, what, what else is coming up for folks? Yeah. A few, a few of the presidential candidates have proposed both uh, UBI, universal basic income, mm -hmm. and wiping out all student, student debt. Well, mm -hmm. student loan debt. Yeah. And as long as those programs are implemented equally for everybody, regardless mm -hmm. of what color you are, I think those are huge pieces mm -hmm. to redistribute wealth. Yeah, yeah, it definitely would be. Mm -hmm. and we talked about how power structures historically are able to write the laws that favor their own their own interests. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And I was just sharing, uh, there was a reason PBS, I think here in Kansas City, neighborhood called the Santa Fe neighborhood right around here, redlining, where redlining was a real thing, and how close to today that those, those politics continue to creep in to our current experience yeah. about the way that you disenfranchise people is that you, 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 you write laws mm -hmm. that favor your own, your own interests. This yeah. is nothing new. What happens is that the laws are written by the people who are in the power in power to further their own benefits, and then according to many authors, one of our local authors, then the people who vote mm -hmm. don't vote in their own best interest. Yeah, that's that, you know, right. that, yeah. you can see that mm -hmm. in, on the state level yeah. and, the, and on the national level as well. Yeah, we do this all the time, right? We we vote against our our. Self-interest, like Missouri is an excellent example. We passed Clean Missouri, which would have created uh, like bipartisan re redistricting process instead of the gerrymandering that's happening now. It would have been uh, campaign finance reform, and then we also voted to raise the minimum wage. And uh, like, but yet we like at the same time we're putting in to power people who actively oppose those things <laughs> because of brand loyalty. And so, and so it just, it's the way, it's the way it rolls. Like these myths, these narratives are really strong. It, it's tough for us to break out of it. Uh, and that's why it's important, I think, for, like that's why I love Martin Luther King's Poor People's Campaign, because it brings together the nation's poor in an intersectional way to be like, hey, this thing ain't working for us. So what, what can we do about it? Yeah. Um, so I work in family court as an agency attorney. Yeah. And um, I'm also a foster parent. So mm -hmm. I've seen, um, like I've had kiddos that are white very few, and, and kiddos that are um, of color, and so, I, and they'll have the same judge, mm -hmm. but the outcomes are radically different. Mm -hmm. And then also just seeing like the people, the clients that we're serving, and then how it's the, like it's 
they were in mom was in foster care, dad was in foster care, grandma yeah. was in foster care. You know, and you have attorneys withdrawing because they can't represent this mom because they represented her mom. So it's like I don't think as an intellectual person you can like honestly not reflect on how we're messing that up. Yeah. If it's the same families, usually black people in Kansas City. Yeah. Um, like something is wrong with us. Yeah. So I just see that all the time. It actually is like causing <coughs> me like a Is that the location Supreme Court that I don't know a whole lot about the family court system, but I think there's one in Well there's a lot more kids in care in, in urban areas. Well, I yeah. think there's there's a Jackson County family court right in So, so I do see a couple other things. I'm also aware of time, and there's one more question that I wanted wanted to get. So, um, if, if it's okay, I would love to just ask this next question because it's going to make it a little bit more personal. Because right now, what I've heard is a lot of like, yeah, we see these problems that are happening, and so one of the things that that's been really helpful for me and for our anti-racism cohort, and we're going to be doing a huge series on this in the summer called the Spirituality of Anti-Racism. But one of the things that, that we need to recognize is how, how we are implicated and what things are, are difficult for us individually. Um, because the reality is that there, there's some stuff that we may be enjoying the benefits from. So here's a question that I pulled from um, a, a study guide on the White Fragility book written by Robin DiAngelo. And I think it's a great question for us to think about here. So here, here's the question, and I can give you an answer so you have an idea of some of the things you can talk about, but I'd love for you to discuss this as, your, as our last question today. So um, what barriers are you less likely to be motivated to remove because of an advantage you receive or because it doesn't currently impact you? I'll read that again. What barriers are you less likely to be motivated to remove because of an advantage you receive or because it doesn't currently impact you? So now we're getting a little bit more personal, and I'll just give you my response so you've got that. So for me, if I'm being completely honest, it is, it is very nice to be able to walk into any kind of business and virtually any place anywhere in the States, and, and I'm going to feel comfortable because it was designed for me and the like, white supremacy culture. <laughs> like, it was designed for this guy. And so if I'm being honest, the, there, the times that I put myself outside of uh, a place where I was racially comfortable. It felt I, like it felt very uncomfortable to, to be in a place where another culture is centered. And so, if I'm being honest, like that's going to be a hard pill for me to swallow. But I think it's also very important, and I need I need to kind of like get used to it um, because other cultures need to be able to flourish, just like uh, yeah, because otherwise we're we're a monoculture, and really it's it's a white supremacy culture, which also does a lot of damage to us. But that's another topic. Mm -hmm. So as white people. So, so that's the question. So what, what are some obstacles or some barriers that you think that you would be less likely to want to remove because of an advantage that you receive or because it has an impact on you? So get in your pairs again and talk about that, and then we'll do one last come back together thing. Okay, so, so what was coming up for you all for this one? What, what are some things that came up? Yeah. Um, we were just remarking on like how it's difficult to identify your privilege sometimes. Like, mm -hmm actual tangible privileges mm -hmm. um, that are changeable. It's just, it's hard to like visualize sometimes. Um, yeah. But 
completely what we were just talking about, like anything where, because it's like, so for example, like if at the library, because Kansas City just got rid of like late fees, which mm -hmm. is awesome. Mm -hmm. And we go to the library a lot. Um, but like, it, what if like they changed it from no late fees to late fees on a sliding scale? So like based on income, you would have to pay like a certain amount for late fees and stuff, which like that would like kind of like that would be that would make it more equitable, I think, and that would definitely be more uncomfortable for us because we like not having to pay late fees because we never return them on time. Yeah. <laughs> but we definitely can pay them like if it's late, like we just pay the fine or whatever. But yeah, yeah. anything where sliding scale where we're not used to paying the same amount as everyone else. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's, a, there's an excellent question. We will, maybe this is for another time, but there, there's an excellent question that came up in an anti-racism training that I was at, like a two-day training. And the question was they asked white folks to name one thing they like about being white. And everybody was forced to go around and answer. And what's interesting is that what you'll see is what white folks talk about is actually their privilege. Because a lot of white folks generally speaking, we'll mention things that are human rights, is things that we love. Uh, and this is where white supremacy does a number on us, because if you ask any people of color to, at, like, to respond to that question, like what do they like about being black, or what do they like about being Latinx, or indigenous, or Asian American, it's, you're gonna hear largely cultural things being responded to. It's like, you know, like one of them was like, black don't crack, you know, and everyone's like, yeah! You know, so it's like things that they love. but. So that's the sad thing. So what do white people right? say? White people are saying human rights. Like, I, I, one thing I like about being white is I don't have to worry about it when I get pulled over. Um, one thing I like about being white is, like, for me, is that I, I'm not going to have my credentials questioned. <laughs> like, I can just walk into a room and everybody's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're great. You know, so it's like these are the things that we come up with as white people for things that we like. And what it, in fact, is is our, our privileges that we're enjoying. It's human rights. It's just a bunch of other folks don't have it. In the same to the same degree and so in order to survive like what's good is like the, the folks are banding together in communities and celebrating their culture and communities as they struggle for the same human rights that we've got but unfortunately what we've done is we've largely given up our ethnicity in order to attain power with whiteness and so that's the cultural damage that does to us yeah. Yeah, because Italians weren't always white. And Irish became white. Same thing. They weren't always white, but now they are. Yeah, like, Jewish folks, not always like, white, now they are. Like, sometimes. sometimes yeah. frustrating when you like, fill out a box, because like, I'm an eighth Native American, so yeah. out of all of them, like if I check a box on anything, I don't check white because I'm more proud to be the Native American than I am the white, mm. you know? And, like, I may look white, but out of, I know exactly like my Native American heritage. Mm. I don't have any idea of my grandma's heritage or mm. anything like that. That's, that's, that's like the allure of power is like we, we give up this stuff and you see it with immigrant communities too. Like folks will come to the States and maybe their kids won't learn their family's native tongue. 
because they, they know that the way they're gonna get their needs met is by learning English and fitting into these boxes. Everybody knows who's gonna have the easiest time getting their needs met, and it's like an unspoken thing. Like in another sermon that I gave a number of years ago here, we did this like thing called Center Borderlands, and we identified who the ideal American is. Like go anywhere in the nation, it's gonna be white, educated, married, heterosexual, middle class, you know, it's like English speaking, you know, just citizen, all, just keep going. And like, everybody knows that. We don't even have to say it, we just know it. Yeah. And so anybody who falls outside of that, we know that in order to, to get a taste of that, the, the resources and, and access that we want and need in order to survive, for our family to survive, we gotta give up this stuff. And that's not right. Yeah, that's not like, fair. Like, yeah. I know uh, my boss is gonna hear with Fixed Energy Services. Mm -hmm. She is, her mother is directly from Mexico. Yeah. But and her father like left before she was born, and her mother refused to speak Spanish to her, yeah. and sent her to private school and didn't even understand anything the teachers were saying, mm -hmm. and barely could communicate with her own daughter because she thought that she would succeed if she knew English instead of mm. Spanish. Yeah. Yeah. It just keeps on going. Yeah. Okay. So one, two, and I think we gotta call it right because it's like one or eleven fifty something. Yeah. Okay. Like yeah. I'm feeling very overwhelmed. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I think that's probably a good thing. Yeah. But based on the trains you've been, like, what are the first steps or the first takeaways that we should have to be different this week somehow? Um, well, the first one is probably to sit with it, because part of the deal, um, part of the deal is us as white folks, we're so not used to. Robin D'Angelo talks about this. If you haven't read White Fragility, you just got to read that thing. That's like a primer for anybody wanting to engage in this work. But like part of it is we're so unused to being racially uncomfortable that when it, when whiteness is named and racism is, is named, we immediately get become like defensive or overwhelmed or all these things, and and so out of that we might out of like the guilt or whatever, which isn't necessarily a bad impulse. We want to like move to action right away, and while that's good, I I, I think it's helpful to sit with the discomfort um, for a while and and. From that place, once like the initial emotionality of it subsides, like then let's figure out what kind of moves we can make. Be because if we're acting out of guilt and shame, I don't know about you, but I, that's how I got saved. So um, that didn't last long. So so like I mean for real, right? So if, if we're if we're going to be committed to anti-racism for the long haul, we cannot be operating out of guilt or shame. So so like the helpful thing, the helpful reframe is just to be like, be, it's inevitable. Like I've been socialized from the day I was born in a white supremacist system. And so inevitably, I'm, I'm going to display uh, racist behavior, racist thought, and, and I can't help it. Like, it's just the way it is. So what we're trying to do now is to notice those things more. Like, maybe we grew up thinking, oh, I, I never saw race. Uh, but I guarantee you, if, if you talk to like people of color uh, who you grew up with, their experience of their, their upbringing would be radically different than yours. Uh, and, and some of that blindness could just be because we're surrounded, we're, we're, we're swimming in a culture that works for us and not for other people. And so we're running around being like, everything's great. Look, we've got all these different types of people in my school. But it's like, I guarantee you, dig a little deeper, there's stuff there. <coughs> right? So, so there's some of that. And then, and then outside of that, I would say it's important to organize. So it's like there's two tracks here. So we can educate ourselves, but we also have to organize. If we're educating ourselves, it's great, you can be the most woke person in the room, but all the systems are still rolling, so I don't get what the point is. Because we've had generations upon generations of people who've been woke, mm -hmm. uh, but our systems are still reproducing themselves. So, so for us as white people, it, it's important for us to hold other white people accountable when stuff comes up, to be like, uh-uh, that, that, that ain't gonna fly. 
like when racist things come up around our, our family circles. But then beyond that, like it's a, important to do the deep dive of where do I have power in the different systems that, I, that I'm in? And then how can I organize to make some shifts? Uh, because that, that's it. But like, let's start where we're at. You know, like for me, I'm trying to organize uh, 1001 uh, and, and the PCUSA uh, because of some stuff that's happening there. You know, like um, the, the 1001 Worshiping Communities movement is 53% people of color. The larger PCUSA denomination is what? Like 90, 96% white? Yep. And so, and what's interesting is the, the polity within PCUSA, so this is like geeking out a little bit, um, 1001 New Worshiping Communities are not considered chartered churches, which means that we do not have representation in, in shaping how, like the kinds of decisions get made at the national level and at the local presbytery level or at the synod level. That's unfortunate. That seems like a barrier, does it not? And so how can we start to talk with people and organize to get those things moving and shifted? So, I mean, it's, it's complicated, but like personally, we got to do that work and then collectively we've got to do some organizing stuff. I don't know if that's helpful, but it's, yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a lot to it, but the main thing is just we never arrive. Just keep saying that. I will never arrive. I'm never going to be woke. <laughs> it's just like I am what I am, and I'm going to keep being committed to this. And in terms of the organizing part, are there um, things in Kansas City already happening right that you think are worth paying attention to? Oh, yeah, all like sorts organi- of things. Which organizations have you found that... Well, I mean, Casey Tenants, that's one example of tenants. So they're a tenants' rights organization in town. They're doing good stuff, like Fight for 15 in the Union. That's great, because like, a lot of what's keeping people back is, is, is not only racism, but also poverty. And so that, that's a double complication when you have those two strikes against you. And so um, any of those movements are great. I love the Poor People's Campaign, because they're trying to address a whole mess of things. Um, and they've got a local chapter here. I mean, you, I mean, you just pick it. Like, I mean, there's a bunch of immigrant, immigrant rights organizations like AIR. So that's, again, dealing with racism and class. So there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a what is it? The open table. The open table. Hey. More squared. Yep, more squared. Mm-hmm. Yep, there's a, there's, there's a bunch of ways to get involved. <laughs> but, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just, I just want to comment. I, I only moved to Kansas City first eight years ago. Mm-hmm. I was born and raised in Chicago. I've never lived in a city more racially divided than here. Mm-hmm. When I lived in Oregon, it was all white. Mm-hmm. In Kansas City, there's black and white, but it's very clearly divided. Oh, yeah. And I grew up in Chicago where there really is not a feeling of I'm separate. Mm-hmm. My high school was probably 50% minority. Mm-hmm. White people were the minority, basically. And it was probably equally, equally split. Mm-hmm. Coming, but coming to Kansas City, there is a real undercurrent of uh, the sense of white supremacy that I have not experienced in other parts of America. Yeah. So there is, there, there's, there's kind of like a Kansas City bubble. Mm-hmm. This conversation is happening here in a unique way. Mm-hmm. So just to not universalize, this isn't true across America. This and the opportunity would, of our particular church is that we're a walk from yeah. the yeah. actual divide. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. One, one quick response, and I'm gonna hand it over to Paul, but to, 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 to your thing, there, there's a beautiful movie in the, the 60, or like that came out recently about the final years of King's life called uh, King in the Wilderness. If you haven't had the chance to see it, it's an incredible, incredible documentary. King in the Wilderness. And so in it, one of the things that King was shocked by is like clearly you see, like we have a picture of who the racist is, and, and I'm, I'm clearly not that. And uh, King was surprised when he went to the North um, how much racism was there actually in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And, and I know that even recently, 
um, the, the way you see it, it it's, it's all coded now, so it's hidden a little bit more, right? So around housing, uh, there, there's a neighborhood, there's a, a friend of mine, a colleague of mine who is a pastor of a church in North, Northwest or Northeast Chicago, I forget where, and they've worked on getting a, a mass amount of money for an affordable housing project. And, and the white neighbors there are freaking out about affordable housing because what's not being named is like we say, no, we don't want that here. And, and no one will ever say race, even though race is definitely a part of it. It's like, well, what's going to happen about crime? Well, what's going to happen about like, uh, uh, well, mainly it's crime. You know, what's going to happen about crime in the instance of housing? And who are they saying? They're not saying like white people are moving in and there's going to be crime. They're thinking, oh, people of color and black folks who I've been socialized to demonize as a criminal, like those are the people I'm afraid. So I'm going to, I'm going to say no to, to this affordable housing project. So, so it's, it's, it's there all over the place, but yes, I think it manifests differently depending on the work that different cities have done and just the, the history of it, too, like you were what, saying. What, so. what you are calling out there is it's probably Northwest Chicago. It's an affluent white area, and I grew up in like working class, lower middle class neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And those neighborhoods, things are pretty integrated. You go out oh, to the yeah. suburbs or yeah. like Johnson County where mm -hmm. it's all white, that's where the fear is, yeah. which, mm -hmm. which is as much racial as it is economic. Yep. Well, thank you. Thank, thank you, Nick. Yeah. I wonder, just as a sign of us taking a step, if you don't mind just standing as we close. And Nick had kind of a cool benediction he gave in the other two oh, services. Yeah. I was wondering if you could kind of bless us with that on the way out. And if, and if yes. you're comfortable, maybe even as a sign of our unity, grabbing a hand of a person next to you or fist bump or whatever you want to do. That would... <laughs> fist bump? Oh, yeah, we'll do that. Yeah. Okay, listen and receive uh, this blessing. As we go from this place, let us live like Jesus, both privately and publicly. May God give us the strength to face our collective past, and may God give us the courage to make things right. Because when we do, we will be known as the people who can fix anything, restore old ruins, rebuild and renovate, make the community livable again. When we do, we will experience the kingdom of God here and now and it will be a miracle. Go in peace. Amen. Amen.